my fancy poster board, and I'm not going to tell you what it's about. And some of you might have already seen some, so don't look. Don't look. Don't look. Don't cheat. Don't cheat. Don't cheat. No cheaters in this house. No cheaters. Okay. All right. You didn't see that last one. You don't know what it is. You have no idea what it is. Could be a drawing. Could be profanity. It's not either. Um, it's neither of them, so I'm just letting you know. Today, we're going to be talking about communion. The title of my message for today is Who's in Your Circle? Uh, I, I just really felt that as we prepare to lead into our fall series and we're going to be in our groups gathering together, that it's important for us to evaluate who's in my life that is close to me that has some of the most influence upon me, whether it be in my decision-making, my preferences, my practices. Who is it that I have around me on a regular basis that has the loudest pull, the loudest voice, the loudest noise in my life? And should they be? So I, I really felt that the Lord was impressing upon my heart to tackle this topic. And when, when we evaluate the idea of, of inner circles, who's my core people? Who are the people that I look to the most for? Uh, we've got to be really self-aware, and we've got to be really honest, like take the gloves off, not get offended, and really put everyone and everything under a microscope personally and evaluate whether or not that relationship is healthy for me. And this is going to be a message that's going to be very easily thought of as, all right, there are obviously people in my life that I have interactions with every once in a while, but I know not to interact with them. This message is to help you take this evaluation so much more seriously, intricately, and deeply to evaluate the people in your life that maybe you thought were the best people for you. Maybe they're some of the closest people. Maybe they're family. And you need to hear what I'm saying today and include those individuals in your evaluation process as to whether or not they are the people that should be in your inner circle. So there's a lot that I got to say today, and there's a lot of ways that what I'm going to say today can be taken. Um, when I was growing up, uh, I, I just think at, at the point of life where I am now, and Lord willing, I have much more life to live, and I realize so much has changed in regards to this topic of inner circles throughout my lifetime. You know, I, I, I've been uh, watching a show that I just recently finished uh, called Friday Night Lights. I never watched that show before. It's about uh, football in Texas for a high school team, and it's really interesting. Um, and one of the things that hit me when I finished the series was, man, when you're in high school and you're growing up, things can get really depressing because your circles always change. Like if you're a freshman and you make some really good friends that might be even sophomores or juniors or even seniors, and then after one year, some of those closest friends die and they're off living life. Or, or like for me, I think about when I was growing up, some of my closest friends were my exact age, but I look at life now and I realize most, if not all of them, I almost have no contact with because of life choices or just because of distance and we don't do a good job keeping in contact. And I was like, man, that's really sad. Some of the people that had some of the most formative years in my life, it's just, it changes. Sometimes it's in our control and sometimes it's outside of our control. But the circle of that particular stage in my life is vastly different than, okay, I think about my college years in particular. And I think about the, the inner circle that I had in college. And that I would, at that season of my life, say, wow, that was even more spiritually formative for me as a Christian. Me in particular, when I was at Bible school. And man, those relationships went really deep in spirituality. But if I'm being real with you, once again, it's the same scenario as high school. It's like, man, where are they? Man, what are they doing? You know, I, I like even some of them are not living for the Lord or living for the Lord. Some of them are pastors like me. And yet I haven't I don't even know what's going on in their life. I don't even know them anymore. Uh, and then I look at my life now, post-college and, and going from a few different churches to now being here. The greatest church that I could have ever been a part of. 
and I think, I think about my community here, and it's just all of them are different. All of them have goods, and all of them have had bads. I mean, nothing bad here. But it's, it's, uh, what are you talking about, Audrey? And it's just, it's, it's different. And, And what, so what I'm trying to say is that it is inevitable that your inner circles of friends are going to change. But what we need is to be honest, humble, and extremely self-aware and unashamed to allow ourselves the ability to say yes to some and to say no to others. Because again, it's inevitable that those circles are gonna change and they're gonna form and you need to ask yourself, are these circles that I have formed in my life of people around me that have the most influence and the most impact, are they the people that I need to have the most impact in my life? Are those the voices that I need to have the loudest speaking to me? Because whether you want them to or not, you've got to realize they will affect you. You cannot escape the power of influence within a community, whether it be Christian or not. So really, today, as we just wrestle with asking ourselves honestly this question, who's in my circle? I want to encourage you, don't be ashamed to be honest and to evaluate, as I'm going to show you, through the lens of God's word, whether or not those people should be in your group or shouldn't be in your group, all right? All right, so I'm kind of going to give you a bunch of different scriptures. We're not going to stay in one passage. I'm going to give you different stories, one from an epistle, and we're just going to find some principles about the kind of company that we keep based on these scriptures. So really, uh, what I'm going to give you points as they pertain to scripture are the results of bad company. I'm going to, it's easy to focus on the negative uh, because it shows us what we got to avoid. And let's be honest, we need to know that. And so when I go over each and every one of these biblical passages and kind of summarize them and read some scriptures from them, the point is going to focus on the results of us falling into the trap of keeping bad company as we see happens in scripture. So the very first story comes from the Old Testament book of the book Numbers. In Numbers chapter 16, we read the story uh, very soon after following the exodus of the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. And they're wandering through the wilderness. And in this journey, there are individuals, one in particular, who had a problem with the leadership of Moses and Aaron in particular. There's a man by the name of Korah. And if you read in Numbers chapter 16, it's just right off the bat. It's like this hard switch. Chapter 15, God is giving commands for the Israelites to follow that will be for their benefit and their blessing and their prosperity in life. And then immediately, chapter 16, there was a man named Korah who had a problem with leadership. In particular, when you read this chapter, Korah did not like that he wasn't a part of the high priestly order. He, in other words, looked at the position that the Lord had given to Aaron, the brother of Moses, and coveted it. He said, I want to be a part of that. If anything, I deserve to be a part of that. Korah has been around since the beginning, since the Exodus. We don't know if he was a great leader, we don't, but what we do know is that he had influence because it says in chapter 16 that Korah went to prominent leaders in the community, 250 prominent leaders in the Israelite community, and he rallied their support. And he laid seed, planted seeds of deception in their minds and in their hearts, and pretty much these seeds of deception were, we deserve more. Who is Moses? Who does he think he is? He has the right to govern us and to lead us. And then his brother Aaron, who's always following behind him and helping him. Who do these guys think they are? And they literally confront Moses and Aaron. And they say, this isn't right. You have manipulated. They're speaking to Moses and Aaron. They're saying, you have manipulated your position. You thought just because you let us out of slavery in Egypt that we're going to listen to you as if you're higher than us. Moses and Aaron 
if you know, never thought that. They were just listening to God, and a lot of times they didn't even want to listen to God. They're like, God, find somebody else. We don't want to do this. They didn't even want the spotlight. And now Cora and these 250 individuals come and say, you're using your position to manipulate people and to hold us under your authority, like under a thumb of a dictator. How dare you? In fact, let's have this, let, let's have this contest of burning incense before the sanctuary of God. And let's see who the righteous people are. Let's see who God's real chosen people are. <laughs> and the story is pretty crazy because God gives Moses a heads up that he's not happy because he knows the hearts of these individuals and he goes I'm telling you Moses and I'm warning you now you and everybody else that isn't a part of this faction and division of these this group of individuals you literally stay away from their tents because the earth is going to open and I'm going to swallow them up and literally that's what happens in the Bakora and all of his rebellion are swallowed up at some sort of catastrophic earthquake that God enacted in a moment moment it happens. So here's the first point that I want to make, because you've got to realize Korah wasn't the only individual affected by his wicked heart. He rallied 250 other individuals and then some that were willing to allow Korah into their inner circle. So here's the first characteristic of the results of bad company. Bad company will lead you to believe that you deserve what God has reserved for others. Come on, we've got to be so real about this. How many of us here get jealous when we see others receiving blessing? When we see others receiving recognition? When we see others receiving positions of leadership? That we're like, I've been going through the same dirt that they've been going through. I've been walking the same road that they've been walking through. Why don't I get what they've got? There's so much in scripture that can answer that question. But I mean, even even the parable in in the book of Matthew, where we see the kingdom of God is like a ruler who went and paid individuals to work at the beginning of the day. And then midway through the day, paid the same amount to those who worked lesser hours. And then for the last people, for the last hour, paid them the same amount. And then at the end of the day, when it came time to ante up, he pays them all the same amount. And the people who worked the hardest came and said, why do they deserve the same amount that we got paid? They didn't work as hard as us. And we know that the master responds, don't I have the right to give, to, to be gracious, to give as I deem fit? I, I, I don't want to play favorites. I don't want to measure your service up against each other. I give willfully and freely. And that's who God is. God doesn't look at the conduct of your character and say, okay, you deserve this, you deserve this, you deserve this. But what he does do is he's going to see whether or not the condition of your heart is ready to steward well the gift that he's going to give you. So maybe the reason that you don't have those positions of leadership, I don't know, this is conjecture, doesn't say in God's words, but who knows, maybe God did have a plan for Korah. Maybe he did. We know he was of the tribe of Levi. He was of the royal priesthood. He came from that lineage. Maybe he was going to be used by God at some point to be used in a high priestly manner. I don't know. But the bottom line is, before we would ever even know that, he allowed anger and I'm going to be able to see this but jealousy to enter into his heart and that ruled him and it dictated his decisions I don't know what his influence was but I do know he had a lot of influence himself and there are 250 individuals in their families who were punished because they allowed themselves to be tainted by someone that had unbelievable influence in their life. That led them to compromise their own covenant relationship with the Lord and to trust him because of jealousy. So we need to be careful not to allow jealousy into our heart. Because then we're always going to be looking at the blessing that God has reserved for others and say, I deserve that. Don't put yourself there. Don't go there. God's got you. And he's working on you, and he's going to give you the blessing that he has for you. I don't know what it is. I don't know how it's going to come, but trust him. All right? All right, so that's that. Now, let me jump to an epistle. This is not necessarily a story of a great individual, but it's a story of a community in Corinth. We know the Corinthian church. Um, And in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 33, it says this. Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. 
If anything, that scripture right there is the thesis, the bottom line, the whole picture of where I'm going with this message. Bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning. For there are some who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. So let me just tell you and remind you what's going on here in 1 Corinthians, specifically as it pertains to chapter 14, 15, and 16. Paul addresses the, the topic of the bodily resurrection of Jesus. The fact that physically, supernaturally, he rose from the dead. Something that we cannot explain, but is completely due to the unknowable, unknowable, matchless power of God that was performed through the bodily function of Jesus, and he rose from the dead. There were false teachings that were circulating throughout the church, Christians who were saying, we get Jesus' teachings, we're for it, but this one, come on, come on, no, no, no. And this idea of Gnosticism that was a philosophical, secular worldview that was creeping its way into the church to try and rationalize away the difficult topics that demand faith. I don't know, but I know. Like, I, I don't get it, but I trust. And they were trying to circulate this idea that, hey, we can be Christians, but you don't need to believe in the resurrection of Jesus. And Paul gives this whole discourse of, if Christ didn't rise from the dead, this is senseless. It's you, why are we here? Why are we talking? This is, this is just a vain attempt. We're lunatics. If we don't believe and trust that Christ rose from the dead, there's no hope. There is no life after death. So what are we doing? Why don't we just go and give into all of our temptations and desires? This is pointless if there is no resurrection. And, and that's what Paul is defending. But he makes this clear point towards the end of this whole argument. Bad company corrupts good character. So he defends logically the idea of the resurrection and how it makes complete sense. And why we ought to follow it. And why it is completely illogical if we try and do away with it and still be Christians. So he hits the logic aspect of it. Now very practically he says, okay, so what are you to do? Stay away from individuals who corrupt your thinking. Broadly speaking, this is about resurrection, but broadly speaking, anybody that tries to constantly malign what you know to be true in God's word, that tears it down, that takes the affirmative step to say, why? No, in fact, think this way. Paul is saying straight up, avoid it. Bad company corrupts good character. Now, he uses very powerful, this is the one scripture that I'm actually going to break down with some of the, the verbiage that's used and some of the nouns. He says, um, come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning. The idea of coming back to your senses is um, the idea of ignorance. He goes on and he says, for there are some who are ignorant of God. That literally should be translated, they remain in their ignorance. It's an action. It's not passive. It's active in the Greek language, meaning they make a decision regularly in spite of what is being said. They hear it, they see it, they understand it, but they reject it. And they say, I don't care. I'm going to just do me right here, right now. They remain in their ignorance is what Paul is saying. It's not, it's not something that is, again, passive. It's not something that, oh, they didn't know. No, no, no. Paul's saying they know, but they choose to reject nonetheless. And he goes on and he, sa he says, um, in this ignorance, as, or as they're remaining in this ignorance, uh, he uses very strong language for that word ignorance. It literally has to do with the idea of drunkenness. He said, come back to your senses and don't remain ignorant. The Greek word there is drunkenness, being impaired in your senses. So what we need to understand here is that Paul is now moving on from this logical approach to defending the resurrection. And he's saying the effects of allowing bad company to constantly have influence over your mind and your heart and your faith is causing you to remain in a drunken stupor, a drunken state, something that you are literally outside of your senses, out of your right mind as you act in. Paul here is addressing the fact that by remaining in this company, you're incapable of discerning God. You're incapable of discerning his word. 
bad company removes your ability to discern the difference between God's word and man's. That, that's the second result as we see in Corinthians right here. He's saying, listen, I can logic with you all day about the importance and the integrity of the logic of believing in the resurrection of Jesus. I'll tell you why it doesn't make sense if you choose to reject it. I'll tell you why it makes sense to choose to accept it. But at the end of the day, it will mean nothing because if you allow individuals in your company to keep you in a state of spiritual ignorance, drunkenness, impairing your senses, you are never going to receive what it is that I have to say. So are there individuals in your group who are themselves willfully ignorant? And how has it affected you? And if I could, if I could say a second point on that. That's not going to be up there. Um, certain company is intoxicating. That, that's really what we also see from here. With, with Paul's usage of these verbs and nouns, he, he's literally saying this bad company, it's not even that you don't see the fault with it. You see the fault, but you like the taste. You like the result that it gives you in your spiritual body. Because you just get to remain ignorant of the, the corruption that it's leading you towards. And it's feeding the sensual desire that you keep going back to. Certain companies intoxicate. Be careful of ignorance. Third, let me jump to back to the Old Testament to a king by the name of Solomon. We know Solomon was the wisest king there ever was. And it wasn't just because he did really well in school. We don't know anything about that. In fact, as he was a new king, God asks him, how can I bless you? You ask for whatever you want, I'll give it to you. It's like, man, I'm waiting for God just to divinely open up the heavens and speak to me that way. Like, oh, I got a list, man. And I'm telling you, I would not have responded the way Solomon did. He, Solomon could have asked for money. He could have asked for fame. He could have asked for accolades. He could have asked for anything. And he says, God, just make me wise. I want, I want the discernment to be able to make the right decision so I can rule well. Like, man, and God saw that, and he thought, because of your humility, because of your heart and your request, I'm going to give you everything else. You're going to be the king that is known in all the land. And to this day, even in secular historical studies, Solomon is known as the wisest, richest king that there ever was. And, and, and so we, we have this guy, Solomon, who does a great job. He's the son of King David himself, who builds the tabernacle in all of its ornate beauty, where the Jewish people were able to sacrifice to God, something that his father David desperately wanted to do. But God said, no, I'm saving this for your son. And he gets to do all of this. He doesn't have to be a man of warfare. He's got to be a man of administration. I think I'd rather take warfare myself. But he, he's just, he's blessed. He is utterly blessed. Never had to lift a sword in his life. And God has just given him everything. But one of the main responsibilities of the kings of Israel was to lead the people in the way that they ought to go. The prophets were the mouthpieces of God. They would have the word of God and declare it. The king was to be the living example. He was to be the one that literally embodied faithfulness. That was the job in God's original plan for the king, not to have power to lord over people, not to show them that they're better, not to put the people under his thumb. God said, Okay, I'm going to allow a monarchy, but the primary responsibility of the king is going to be to be the best shining example, the embodiment of the word of God, living it out with integrity. Solomon doesn't do that. Let me read for you in 1 Kings chapter 11, starting in verse 1. King Solomon, however, so let's just say, however, in spite of his greatness, his awesomeness, his faithfulness, his integrity, in spite of all that, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughters. He's one way. Some Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, Hittites, Tintonites, Neptunites, Asbariites. They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Really quickly, this is one of those scriptures that's taken to say, look at this deranged evil God that doesn't want you to love whoever you want. Racist, 
bigotry. That's not what this is. It's not because of their race. Did you see what it just said? Because they will turn your hearts away. Because I know the practices that they're steeped in. God wanted the whole world to come to know him, and he wanted the Israelites to be the light. But he says, you've got to watch out, because back to 1 Corinthians, bad company corrupts good character. He had no problem with the ladies of that nation. He had a problem with their hearts. So don't marry them, because they will turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held down for dear life is what that's trying to say to them in love not a good love he had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines and his wives led him astray as solomon grew old his wives turned his heart after other gods and his heart do you see a common theme here heart 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 was not fully devoted to the Lord his God. His heart was not fully devoted. Hold that. As the heart of his father, David, had been, he followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Moloch, the detestable god of the Ammonites, sacrificed babies. Uh, so Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely. As David, his father, had done. Stop and pause. Was David a perfect man? No. And we know the story of David and Bathsheba. But David, David's heart was right before God. Why? Because he repented. He said, God, I screwed up. Forgive me. I'm sorry. Against you and you alone have I sinned. Forgive me, God. Solomon takes it a whole step further. And it's not just one Bathsheba. He's going after thousands. Man. This man, what did he get himself into? Better make a joke and like one's hard enough. No, um, I'm kidding. But what I think is really important about this scripture is it, it, it says twice in different ways that his heart at the end wasn't completely devoted to God. So what does that imply? Syncretism. That, that, that's a, 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 a big studied word that has the idea of they all dwell God. The idea that we see today in culture that there are many paths to heaven. And listen, I'm so gracious. If you believe that here today, we love you. But I'm telling you, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And we believe that unapologetically. And we're just always going to share that in love. Um, there's only one way to heaven. And it's through Jesus Christ, his son. Solomon said, I got to keep God happy. But I got, I got a lot of ladies to keep happy as well. I got a lot of ladies. So, God, you understand, right? Like, I'm going to do you, and then I'm, I'm going to do what they want to, and, and I'll just worship everybody and keep everybody happy. His heart wasn't completely. God is, a, God is a jealous God. The scriptures always refer to him as jealous, specifically in the context of idolatry. You shall have no other gods before you, no other gods before me, no other gods before me. Implying that there are going to be many temptations for you to turn to other gods. There are going to be many vices, many literal and, and, and non-literal things that are going to draw your attention away from the one true God that will become a form of idolatry. It could be, it could be even yourself. We see that in culture today where you are the idol of everything. Your life revolves around yourself and every decision you make revolves around you. We see that in culture today. And it's not helping the rising levels of anxiety and depression and suicide. Drug addictions. It's, it's not helping. It's exponentially increasing them. Because we weren't wired this way. We were wired with a void in our souls that only God can fill. And he wants a relationship with us. And Solomon said, no, I can have multiple relationships to fill that void in my life. So here's the point. Um, bad company will lead you to emotional responses resulting in compromise the love that solomon had again wasn't sacrificial love it was chemical love it was him not thinking with his head it was him giving into his inner desires and and that can again transcend the topic of of sexual morality it can lead to so many other avenues of life where we're just so emotional. Have you ever been so mad? 
so mad, so angry against someone, and it might be something that is worthy of your anger. It might be righteous indignation, but as you're emotionally charged, you just respond in a way that afterwards you're like, what did I just say? What did I just do? Or you might have no righteous indignation. You're just mad because somebody said something you didn't like that might have been true and emotionally charged. You charge in, you speak, and then even afterwards, you don't care. You're like, how dare they? How dare they, even if they were right? You know, we can be so emotionally charged in the heat of a moment, no matter what the moment looks like, whether it's sexual or or just anger or pride. And it leads us to a place where we have a decision to make. Am I going to maintain the integrity of my relationship with God? Or am I going to compromise? So are there individuals in your circle who ultimately are emotionally led, who are encouraging you to respond to whatever's going on in your life based on how you're feeling in that moment? Saying, oh yeah, you're right for feeling that way. I don't know who he or she thought she was talking to. You go and you, you, you do exactly what you're feeling. Or do you have individuals that are saying, I know you're I know you're hurting. I know you're upset. But let me just speak a little bit of what I see going on right now. Because I, I'm here to help you because I love you. And then they speak truth to you. Whether you want to hear it or not. Samson. Samson. Let's go, let's move on. Samson. We know the story of Samson. You know how I think of him? Because I love, I love a lot of superhero movies. He is modern day Luke Cage in my mind. He is the bulletproof brother in Harlem that has, that has utter respect and nobody can do anything against. Unless they get the Judas bullet. <laughs> that, can, that can kill him. Um, th- this is, in my mind, who Samson is. And we see it biblically. He was a man who was prophetically shown to his parents before he was born as going to be God's judge that's going to be a great man. And his parents were given specific instructions from the time he was in the womb. His mother was told by an angel of God to take a Nazarite vow, which was essentially don't cut your hair, don't have any wine or fermented drink, no booze of any kind, uh, and don't go near, doesn't even say don't touch, don't even go near any dead animal, dead thing. It it was just a part of being ceremonial clean and this idea of being set apart, being righteous. And so from the time he was in his mother's womb, he was already embarked in this journey. And then it it just quickly fast forward to later in his life where he's, he's a grown man. We don't know how old. And it says very specifically that in spite of Samson being meant to be set apart, the first thing it says in Samson's story is that he went. To a city called Timnah. Timnah. Now, without going too far with all of this, we need to understand, technically Timnah was a part of the allotted inheritance for the Israelite territory, the Israelite tribe of Dan. So it was a part of the promised land that was reserved for the Israelites. But the Israelites didn't fully follow through in driving out all the inhabitants, and they allowed the Philistines to inhabit some of those lands. So even though this was a land reserved For the Israelites, it was Philistine territory. And in case you're wondering, Philistines were the bad boys. They were the guys that were always, always, always coming against the Israelites, where the famous Goliath that King David defeated was from. These were bad, bad, bad individuals. And God had a plan to use Samson in order to bring health and justice and peace to the land of Israel in this tumultuous time. Because remember, in the book of Judges, it says very, very common theme throughout this whole book is that during the time of Judges, the people, the Israelites, did what was right in their own eyes. In other words, they said, I'm going to do whatever I want, whatever makes me feel good. And this was one of the greatest times of moral and utter decay for the people. And not only did it cause their moral decay, they were always on the run. Gideon, the famous story of Gideon, he was hiding as the Lord came to him. He was afraid for his life because he was out in the open, afraid of Philistines and Amorites and Ammonites. 
They were in the promised land. They were supposed to be experiencing God's blessing that he had given them. But because they didn't follow through, now they're in fear. So God uses Samson. He, or he wants to use Samson as his instrument of righteousness to deliver the Israelites. And the very first thing that we see Samson doing, he goes to Timnah. If you read, it specifically says that this was, even a, this was also a part of God's plan. Because he goes to Timnah and he finds a Philistine woman and he goes to his parents and he goes, Hey, mom and dad, I found myself a, 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 a honey that I like and I want you guys to let me marry her. And they're like, can't, can't you just, you know, I got a nice little Jewish bullet over here. Don't you like her? I mean, she's pretty and she follows our customs and our community. Like, no, I want her. And it's, it's interesting. God, it says the parents didn't know that this was a part of God's plan. Why would this be a part of God's plan? God who said to be set apart. It's not because God wanted him to marry this lady. He had every intention of Samson going into the Philistine territory in order to take back what was rightfully theirs. But what does Samson do? He gets caught up in a culture that he was supposed to be set apart from. And what's interesting is you go on with the story of Samson, and as he's on that very same route that he gets well acquainted with traveling to Timnah, the territory of the enemy, one day as he's on that road, he gets jumped by a lion. And you think, okay, he's dead. What does Samson do? It says, the spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily, and he ripped it from its jaws as if he would rip a goat. And I kind of laugh because that's what, it's like the Bible's trying to make, <laughs> oh, it's like ripping a goat in half. I've never ripped a goat in half. I don't get it. But I get it. It's like goat, lion. So, all right. And he just rips it in half. And it says very specifically, he didn't tell his parents about it. Why? Why would he not tell his parents about it? Well, later on, he's on that same road. And he's, he's shacking up with the Philistines and not doing what God wants him to do. And he's on his way back. And he sees that lion that he killed. And he sees that bees had started to create a nest and there was fresh honey. But remember, this is a dead carcass. He had taken the Nazarite vow. And what does he do? He looks at the lion, knowing what his Nazarite vow is. Scoops it up, eats it, and keeps walking. Why? Let's bring it back to Luke Cage. He's bulletproof man. He's living amongst the Philistines and they can't touch him. His ego is so inflated. Now, all of a sudden, he sees his trophy. I did that. I deserve the right to be able to reap the reward for my work, even though it compromises my convictions. And later, we know Samson goes on to Gaza, another just straight up Philistine territory that was theirs. He meets Delilah, another prostitute. We don't know if they were the same lady or if he had two different prostitutes. It's debated in the scholarly world. But again, Samson, man, this is not a dude to look up to. I'm just saying. So, so, so here's the point about what we need to see from Samson. Um, I was supposed to read that scripture to you. I didn't. But here's the point. The lion for Samson represented deliverance. To Samson, it represented entitlement. Because remember, the lion jumps him. What does it say in scripture? I didn't read it, but it says specifically in Judges chapter 14 in verse 6, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him so that he tore the lion apart with his bare hands. Credit goes to God. He would have been dead, but the spirit of the Lord comes upon him and that's where he gets his juice from. That's, that's what saved him. But he lost sight of that. And now he's looking at the lion saying, I did that, not God, you delivered me from that. He allowed the lion to represent something that was not his business. He was a man of entitlement. So, again, you have people in your life that are just entitled and that are trying to teach you entitlement. No, you deserve. No, you deserve. No, you deserve. You want to know what I deserve? Nothing. Nothing. But God has given me everything. And that's my hope. And man, that's freeing to know how much I'm loved by God. Because if we're being real, 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 and we want to go down that route of, oh, I, I deserve, I'm entitled to, 
But you also better be really real when there's a lot of pain you do deserve. There's a lot of punishment you deserve for your own actions. But we don't like to focus on that. We like to look at what, no, I deserve this. Look at how hard I work. So let me make another point on Samson. Bad company leads us to believe that we are set above rather than set apart. Why? Why? Samson was constantly going into the enemy territory. He took their women. He belittled them. He made them feel like nothing, not for the glory of God, but because he kept stroking his own ego. He loved the way it made him feel. God had a purpose for him to go and to drive out the Philistines, but he lives among them and enjoys their pleasures and really just says, you can't touch me. You can't touch me. From the time he was in his mother's womb, God intended him to be set apart. But then Samson, in an inflated ego, says, no, I'm set above all that. You're nothing. Arrogant. Arrogant. If you have individuals that are in your circle that are just utterly arrogant, that are never wrong, they're never wrong. They're always right. I mean, like always, even when the truth is just painfully in front of their faces. Nope, I'm not wrong. I'm not wrong. I'm not wrong. Or they're willing to admit fault for small areas or point out and they talk a big talk and say, yeah, man, like we need to be humble before the Lord. And so and so isn't being very humble and they're never wrong. But the minute you say, well, you know, let me be real with you. I've been seeing this in your life. No. No, or, or rather than saying no, they just try to justify their reasoning and say, well, you know, the reason I feel that way, and they try to talk their way out of it. And like, no, no, just be honest. You love pride in your heart so that you're arrogant and you're, ne- you're never wrong. Yeah. Ultimately, let's bring it back to Samson's parents. Why, again, didn't he want his parents to know about the lion? Well, just previously, when he told them about a girl who was a Philistine that he wanted to marry, while maybe they didn't handle it the best way, they still told him, she's, she's not, she's going to lead your heart astray. She doesn't adhere and submit to the one true God, and she's Philistine. They hate us. They're against us. Th- this is not God's plan for you right now. He didn't tell him about the lion because he didn't want to be reminded again that he was to be held accountable. Bad company refuses accountability. Bad company tells you, you don't need to answer to anyone. You don't need to admit fault. You don't need to be honest before people. You don't need to be open. You're you're above everybody. You're beyond everybody. You don't need to submit. That's what bad company leads to. Samson embodied all of of these attributes Let's look at one more scripture. One more scripture. It's a really positive scripture. Um, and, and we're going to play with it a little bit, but Philippians chapter 4, verses 8 through 9. This is the last scripture, and we're going to close. Philippians chapter 4, starting verse 8. Paul. Paul, who is commending the church in Philippi. This is considered or been titled by scholars the joyful letter because Paul is so joyful. He's so proud of the church in Philippi. He's not ripping him a new one like he does to the Galatians. He's not telling the Corinthians that, man, you guys have so many resources and so much power, like they're a mega church, and yet you are not using them the way that they ought to be used. He doesn't have an issue with that. He, he's so joyful for this church, and there's like almost nothing bad that he says at all. He has a few watch out, and this is one of those watch out exhortations that's really positive. It's more just focus on this. And he says this, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, Whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Dwell constantly on such things. Whatever you have learned or heard from me, put it into practice. And the God of peace will be with you. Paul was a carrier of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
And he unashamedly bowed in subservience to the word of God and followed it unashamedly. So understand that last part is not coming from an arrogant man. It's coming from a man who is sure of his faithfulness in the Lord and said, I am not perfect, but I know that as an apostle of Jesus Christ, I've been given that authority and I have not compromised the integrity of that authority. So trust what you've learned from me. Trust what you've heard. Trust what you've seen from me and do likewise. And he says, all of these things that have to do with how we think. He's not even really talking about like, don't go and sleep around with people. Don't go and do drugs. Don't, don't steal. Don't murder. Don't. He does that plenty of times in other places. But right here, he says, think about good things. And, and what's interesting is immediately preceding these verses is the famous, don't be anxious about anything. But in everything, with prayer and petition, with thanksgiving in your heart, make your request to God. Don't be anxious. And then in verse 9, as we just read, he says, if you dwell on all of these righteous, good, lovely, truthful, peaceful, excellent, praiseworthy things, the peace of God. Don't be anxious about anything. Focus and dwell on all of the righteous truth that is found in God and his word. And the peace of God. Let me do it one more time. Don't be anxious about anything. Dwell, focus, surround yourself with individuals who are constantly going to influence you in a positive way to focus on truth, to focus on what is noble, what is righteous, what is excellent, what is praiseworthy, what is lovely. Be surrounded with an inner circle of people that allow and uplift these characteristics and the peace of God. But why am I anxious? Just follow that train of thought. Carry that home with you. Evaluate your circle. Evaluate the loudest voices. Evaluate how much social media you take in. Evaluate how much news you take in. There's, there's importance to it, and we need to be well-informed, but how much of it is just invading your mind constantly so that now you're just a regurgitation of all of the negativity that you constantly read about. Yes, can I just say it really clearly, forgive me, the world sucks at times, but God loves us nonetheless. And he's like, the answer is this, not that. Bad company seeks to conform you. God seeks to transform you. Bad company wants you to conform. Conform to what? Bad company wants you to conform and so much more I just hit a few who's in your life who's got the loudest voice what are they saying what are you feeling how are they acting and then ask yourself am I anxious am I depressed am I angry all the time Proverbs says be careful of the company that you keep of angry individuals because it will inevitably infect you in my paraphrase version of it. <laughs> what kind of company are you keeping? Keeping. Jealousy, ignorance, emotionally led, charged individuals, entitled individuals, arrogant individuals, individuals that just want you to conform to everything you read and everything that you see going on in the world. God says, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You cannot escape how what goes on in here shapes you. You can't. And then what comes out of here and you do with this reveals how this has shaped this. Understand, it starts here. We like to focus on the heart, but understand it starts here. In Jewish thinking, the idea of the heart or the soul was all of this. It was logic and it was emotion. You can't separate the two. They're, they're inextric inextricably linked. So 
Let me just be really practical for a minute, all right, to finish this out. Um, let me give you some steps to removing bad company. Again, this isn't exhaustive. Um, it might go deeper for some of you, but I promise you these are tried and true, biblical, practical, worldly as well practices that are taken that you need to potentially put into your life. That might not be easy. So here's some steps. Number one, be honest. You need to first be honest about what kind of individuals are in your circle. I don't know. I'm not. This isn't going anywhere. I'm saying this could be your mom, man. I'm just saying this could be your mom. What do you do with that? You know, I don't know. This could be your, this could be your, this could be a spouse or something. Not everybody's married. So that person that you love and spend a lot of time with that ain't your mama. <laughs> that person. Like, these could be easy to point out in people that you have regular interactions with. And I'm not saying you don't talk about that. I'm talking about an inner circle, okay? This is where you've got to be really, really, really unashamedly honest. These qualities can be embodied by your parents, your siblings, your best childhood friends. Am I saying that now all of a sudden you hate them and you turn your back on them? No, but you've got to, I'm jumping ahead, set limitations. But in order for us to set limitations, we've got to be really self-aware. Really, really, really self-aware. In other words, I mean, you've got to be honest. Like, how much of this do you actually like? You might be sitting here saying, yeah, that's bad. But then when you actually go home and you really think about it, you might be like, I like this. I like to remain in ignorance. I like to willfully remain ignorant. Or I, I like when I just get to think with, my, with, with just that senseless emotional passion rather than actually have to think through my actions and hold my tongue before I speak or act. you got to be really self-aware about these things. Be honest. Set limitations. So those people that you love that might embody these, this bad company that will corrupt good character, your limitations might have to be, listen, I love you and I'm there for you, but I'm not going to go party with you anymore. Or I'm not going to sit down and I'm not going to constantly gossip with you. Like you just, you, you seem to feed on this. Uh, we'll talk about anything else. I'm not talking about that. Like I'm not. I love you, but we're not going there. Like you've got to determine because you're going to know in your heart if you have allowed God to give you discernment and not have allowed bad company to cause you to lack that discernment, you're going to be able to discern and say, okay, I, I can't do this, all right? Uh, and that entails, by necessity, having a conversation. It's another practical step. A lot of us don't like to have conversations. You've got to have a conversation. You've got to have a conversation. You cannot expect people to just be able to read your mind. And listen, you, as if you're a follower of Jesus here, you've got to you remember you represent Jesus. So your approach in handling this must be done in love. And if you automatically just, I'm blocking you on all my phones, I'm ignoring, it might come to that at some point, but don't start with that. I'm blocking you, I'm unfriending you, I'm not talking with you, I hate you. But you don't even say that to them. They just are like hitting them up and they're not hitting me back. Like, what is going on? You have not represented Christ appropriately. You've left them in the dust, and now they're like, exactly, exactly. That's the, that's the image of Christianity that I see the news talk about, and I just experienced it. Be careful. If anyone causes one of these ones to stumble, one of these little ones to fall, be better for them to be thrown into the ocean with a millstone tied around their neck. Be careful. You represent Jesus. And then lastly, this is where now it might come to this impasse of I've done everything appropriately. I've had the conversations. I've set limitations, and they just won't respect it. They won't hear me. It's time to, time to cut ties. Do it in love and say that I'm always going to be there for you when you're ready. When you're ready. But I follow Jesus. My life is new. I'm a new creation in Christ. I, I can't go back to my old self anymore. Trust me, I want to, but I can't. So I love you, but I cannot continue on this relationship anymore. And honestly, that's the hardest step that I wish wouldn't have to happen. But all of us being really real with ourselves probably know we've had to do that or we have to do that. 
it's inevitable for some relationship with the hope that they would be restored one day and come to know the Lord. These are just some practical steps that we all can take and be honest, set limitations, have a conversation, and then lastly, maybe end a relationship. I'm going to close with us in prayer. Would you stand with me on your feet? Um, But the very last thing, the very, very last thing that I want to leave us with before I close this out is we focus on being able and willing and knowing to identify bad conduct and characteristic in others. But can I just ask you to be really honest with yourself? Maybe you're the one occupying the seat in someone else's life. Maybe you're the one occupying this seat in someone else's life. You might fall into any one of these seats or others that I haven't even put up there. And we're all tempted to do it. You represent Jesus. You're called to be light in the world. Being self-aware also necessitates that you be humble before the Lord and say, God, search me. If there be any unclean thing inside of me, make it clear. And God, just help me. I'm not perfect. I can't be perfect, but you are perfect. And so I call on you and I ask you, help me. Help me not to keep going down that path. And if I should stumble, if I should fall and find myself going back to the habit of being a jealous, arrogant, ignorant, emotionally charged, entitled individual, being an addicted individual, being an angry individual. Lord, whatever it is, if I can't forgive people, if I cannot just let things go, whatever it is in my heart that is bad, I pray, Lord, help me. Transform me. And may I not just fall into conformity with the world. So, Lord Jesus, I just right now humbly ask you, humbly ask you, please, God, search our hearts. Every individual in this place, every individual in this place who's struggling with anything that we know ought not to be present in our lives. Jesus, right now, I pray that you would make that clear. Jesus, if our hearts are veiled or hardened, if we're too arrogant, Jesus, break arrogance right now. Show it to us. Would we be honest? Lord Jesus, I pray that we would be repentant before you. Right now, wherever you are, I would just encourage you in your heart, with your own mouth, in your mind, just give it to God. Say, Lord, forgive me of this. Lord, help me of this. And then finally, don't allow Satan to bring you under condemnation. Remember that if you give it to the Lord, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He holds no wrong against you. You might make that mistake again at some point. You might go and make the mistake tomorrow, even though you just repented of it. Keep giving it to God. And he says, I'm going to keep loving you. You just got to be honest. Be willing to recognize this is a problem that I give to you, Lord. Fix it in me. Help me to overcome it. That's all the Lord wants. Don't buy into the lie of Satan that you are condemned. You are not condemned if you are in Christ Jesus. You are a new creation in Christ. And then lastly, Lord, I just pray for those of us here today that are doing our best, but we, we, in being honest and being really real, we see some of the closest people in our lives are some of the worst influences for us. They're bad company. And Lord, right now, I pray that we together pray for them. Jesus, those individuals that maybe have hurt us, that have wronged us, or that we see right now as embodying these characteristics, God, we give them to you. Lord, I know that you love them. I know that you care for them. I know that you have a purpose for them. From before the foundations of the earth were laying God, you knew them, and you desire that they know you, Jesus. So, Lord, we don't hate them. We don't hold grudges against them. In fact, Lord, we pray for them right now. And we ask that you would deliver them. You would allow us to be a light for them and others to be a light for them. Help them in their situations that they're in. Jesus, allow others to speak into their lives in ways that we can. Transform them. And then God, help us to be willing 
to set limitations, to have conversations, to be honest, and if needed, to end relationships, God. We're set apart. Will we stop walking down the road to Timnah? Will we stop walking the road to Gaza in arrogance and entitlement, thinking that this isn't going to hurt me? What can they do to me? God, just break that, that lying spirit over us. Jesus, I just lift your name high above every other name in this place. And in closing, God, I pray that we would dwell on what is excellent and praiseworthy, noble, true, and lovely, and honorable. And I pray that the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will rest on us in this place. Be with us, God. I know that you live and reside in us. Continually fill us, I pray. We trust you. We look to you. Until we all gather together again, would we maintain the integrity of your name in every conversation and every relationship. And in Jesus' name, the people of God said,